Mike O'Vonnen, one and all uh, travelers along this uh, road that goes ever on. Uh, welcome to the Literary Baptists. Uh, I'm Lee, and I'm joined as always by my friends and co-hosts, Maddie, Nick, and Zach. How are you all doing this evening? Hey, good. Good to be here. <laughs> all right, pipe down, old man. That was enthusiastic. <laughs> trying to get my time in <laughs> yeah i was gonna say uh grandpa drank too much coffee this afternoon he's all wired now grandpa i guess i am the oldest huh he's ready um, to get he's ready to get through this and go watch the football playing all night i guess it is there's thursday night football yeah i don't know i don't watch it i read books anyway <laughs> Speaking of reading books, before we before we dive into this chapter of the Silmarillion, uh, let's go around the table here. And uh, what what have you guys been reading lately? What's been capturing your imagination? Well, uh, I just finished Boethius yesterday. Is that how we say his name? Is, I mean, that's how I said it. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea how it's pronounced. How are you trying to pronounce it? Boethius. Boethius. <laughs> Probably manageable. I don't know. But yeah, I finished Boethius last night after losing the book for like six weeks. So glad that I found it, finished it. Uh, currently reading Beowulf, which I absolutely love. Like, absolutely love. Now, that. are you reading the Tolkien translation? No, <laughs> but I would like to. Next time, next read. I like it so much that I would probably buy like pretty much every translation just to read it. Are you reading the yeah. Haney translation? No, of course I'm a failure because I don't have the translation. It starts with an R. I'll have to look it up. It's all the way in the other room and I don't remember and I'll probably say it wrong. That sounds familiar because I, I have a copy. Is that a small white book? Yeah. I think I might have the same copy because that sounds really familiar. Yeah, I'm going to try to, I don't know if I'll find it, but I, I picked it up at a book bazaar and, and we actually encountered that um, in our history for my kids were doing homeschool. And so I was like, you know what, we'll just read it. Cause I never got to read it growing up and I'm just loving it. Like it makes me so happy, so much fun to read about it. And so much of what I've read recently and even Tolkien's work and Lewis's work are very influenced really by both, but Beowulf and having just finished Dracula not that long ago, there's kind of elements from even Beowulf in Dracula. So, yeah, that's mostly what I'm reading right now and this book, obviously. Yeah, of course. Of course, the Silmarillion too. Nicholas, what's on what's on your docket? Uh, I am reading very slowly uh, cord the, the short stories of Cordwainer Smith, who was a science fiction author, wrote hmm. back in like the 50s and 60s. He, I think he wrote the, the manual for the United States on psychological warfare, but then just in his spare time, he was a science fiction writer. Uh, so that's awesome. And he might have been, I think he was a Catholic too. He's a weird dude. But his his science fiction is really interesting. The what's the his name again? Read Cordwainer Smith. That's that's his name. I forget what his real name is. But um, it's uh, the one I read was I think kind of against feminism. It's like in the story, there's a planet where the, the women die just unexpectedly, uh, and so the the women like transform themselves into men and gain characteristics of men and the society is considered it and he calls it like subhuman uh Whoa. because there are just men in this society and um it's very interesting because it's written in the 60s but it kind of deals with issues that we are dealing with today uh and in the end cats save the day which is an interesting thing too i knew you'd like that lee oh, uh, yeah the cats are the saviors in this. Uh, it's a very weird story. Meow. Uh, yeah. The it's I think it's called the 
Commander Suzdal is the the story. But I'm also reading Christopher Lash's um, The Revolt of the Elites and Betrayal of Democracy, which is a nonfiction book. And it's just kind of a series of essays on how elites have kind of taken over institutions and they're the ones who are subverting what was the original American uh, idea. And it's not like the, the nasty people, the, the, you know, the lower classes that are revolting and changing things. It's actually the, the upper class folks. Um, Hmm. So both very interesting books. Is that what you're reading, Zach? Are you reading at the same time with Nick? No. no I don't, I'm not reading. <laughs> at all. <laughs> I started Dracula because of peer pressure. I'm going to work on finishing Dracula in the near future. And, um, of course, the film like been, been working, but um, I, don't, I don't have a I'm kind of in between. Um, in, in the series from the Cradle series from Will White, it's it's kind of like um, Final Fantasy meets Dragon Ball Z kind of a vibe to it, where everybody's trying to level up. It's it's kind of weird, interesting, but um, and uh, I've got to finish uh, Brandon's uh, Skyward book three uh part of the way through that what's it called skyward it's his skyward series uh, i don't remember if that's the exact title i don't have the book in front of me um, but he's got several series that are all ongoing is that uh, within the cosmere or is that prior to the cosmere i don't think that one is i think that one's outside the cosmere you're right skyward um i'm looking it up right now that one's a, a, a sci-fi kind of uh, the the internet has classified it as young adult yeah that, that's me so. <laughs> I fall into that category <laughs> happy for I you just read it because I'm a Sanderson fanboy so. Uh, I've loved everything he's written. Yeah, you you had socially pressured me into to trying to restart uh, Way of Kings for the third time. Uh, uh, I have not yet succumbed to that peer pressure. Um, however, I did fall prey to the same peer pressure uh, to read Dracula uh, that you fell under as well. Um, almost as if I was bitten by a vampire. Uh, I I have I am I am mid change. I'm about sixty percent way through the through the novel right now. I hit a a dry spell. Um, Nick's gonna kill me, but uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been back on a on a contemporary poetry binge, and I have the <laughs> I have the collected works of uh, uh, Charles Wright, who's one of my favorite of the uh, living poets. He's a former poet laureate. Um, I really. I've enjoyed his stuff. It's obviously it's it's not rhyming. It's not fitting any form, but uh, I enjoy kind of so the postmodern uh, garbage. You would qualify it as postmodern garbage. <laughs> OK, however, it, it's very imagistic, uh, which is something I enjoy. I enjoyed the imagist poets anyway. Um, and so uh, it, it it tickles my fancy, uh, at least on that side. So I've been reading that as well. So that was kind of my procrastination from finishing Dracula was contemporary poetry. So sorry to disappoint. You did. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely a disappointment. Hey, I could I could have lied and said I read something else. So I didn't lie. I confessed. OK, I guess honesty is a good policy, they say. <laughs> However, I do. I have the collected works of John Donne, um, and I'm really hoping to uh, to tear into that uh, this winter. Uh, Much better. I'm very excited Much about better. that. I I loved. I I first read his his work uh, in high school English, um, and uh, really really enjoyed. Even though I didn't quite get it at the time, but uh, my brain has now grown up, and I definitely appreciate him a lot more than I used to. So, 
I'm excited to dive into that this fall. So, or winter, I guess I should say. All right, well, um, so we are discussing tonight um, the chapter of the beginning of days, uh, which is the first chapter of the Quenta Silmarillion. Um, so we finished the Fala Quenta last time. O over the over the course of the discussion so far, there's been a lot of discord among uh, the Valar uh, against Morgoth or Melkor, as he's still known at this point, or Melkor the Morgoth, which uh, I really like. Um, and we still see more of that here, uh, except that we we begin to see more of the work uh, of the Valar in in Middle Earth coming to fruition. So we're seeing a lot of growing things happening in this chapter. Um, uh, mosses and trees and all sorts of things are are growing. Uh, the children of Iluvatar still have not uh, yet woken up, uh, but there's still more uh, more rage to to come from Melkor, and so we see him do quite a few um, uh, depraved acts of destruction uh, in this chapter, and, and and we'll talk a bit about that too. So, kind of more of the same, but uh, the the full. Um, the song of the of the Ainur is is coming more and more into fruition at this point, um, unabated. Even though uh, they are a bit harried by the the acts of Morgoth, so I, I have to say at, at the start of the chapter here, I was I was very happy for Zach because his boy Tulkas gets a uh, gets a shout out at the very beginning of this chapter. Uh, so exciting. <laughs> it's so good. I love him. Can you? Uh, I know it, this isn't something we talked about previously, but as I was rereading the chapter tonight, I was very taken by the fact that we've we've gotten another uh, reference to Melkor, not only hating but fearing Tulkas's laughter, mm. almost more than anything else, right? Because Tulkas is very strong, right? He's he's inclined to to dealing with conflict. You know, he's a fighter, he's a brawler, uh, but he laughs. And uh, uh, so one of the things I underlined was um, hearing in the far heaven that there was the battle, uh, there was battle in the little kingdom and Arda was filled with the sound of his laughter, Tulkas's laughter. So came Tulkas the strong, whose, whose anger passes like a mighty wind, scattering cloud and darkness before it. And Melkor fled before his wrath and his laughter and forsook Arda. And there was peace for uh, a long age. I think it's super yes. interesting that he would hate he would hate the laughter so much, and the might. Of well, course, he, I mean he hates anything that has uh, joy and beauty, and uh, laughter is one of those things you you don't you don't uh, you don't usually laugh from a place of anger or fear um i mean there's some nervous laughter or maniacal laughter i guess but um but this is more a, a joyful like he's obviously enjoying himself right <laughs> like hey i heard there was a battle <laughs> yeah whoa <laughs> i'm here for it <laughs> yeah but it's laughter like is humbling mm-hmm like if if someone like if you laugh at someone who's who thinks very highly of themselves, you know yes. that can help bring them down pretty quick. Uh, it can attack the pride in a way, and I mean that's why things like memes can can help you know shift people's thoughts on something is because you mock things that are kind of dumb and uh, Melkor's. I mean he he sees himself as the highest being when he's clearly created so yeah. mocking that and laughing at it is kind of a proper response really yeah i think there's a little bit of a psalm 2 vibe there like he, agreed he who sits in the heavens laughs like yeah i'm not i'm not worried about you here yeah it's, it's a it's a confident and triumphant laugh 
Yeah. You know, it's not a nervous laugh of like, you know, we get nervous and instead of cringing, we laugh instead. No, it's like it's like an assurance, a laugh of assurance. Like Tukas knows he he's going to take the day when it comes to the battle here. Um, and he does. Um, and so there's like a there's a, a I guess like a holy assuredness to it, you know, that, um, you know, uh, to, to quote a, a hymn, you know, whatever the Lord ordains is right. And we can. Uh, we can trust that not only God will do what is right and he will win as well. And so I think that, I think that kind of impulse to, to laugh at the the futile works of the enemy. Um, I think, I think I can see that in this tale and see the truth of that uh, played out in, in, in the Christian life too. You know, we should be, we should be joyful and, I think a little a little laughter at the uh, the silly works of darkness is not unwarranted at times. Absolutely, laugh in his face, man. Works for me. Um, so we have a big constructive act that begins um, the chapter here, um, and uh, so I think. The power couple of the Valar, uh, Aule and, and Yavanna, as far as like creative forces go, you know, obviously people will say that uh, Manwe and uh, and uh, El- I always want to call her Elbereth, so I just always do. Um, uh, they're definitely the most powerful of of the Valar, right? But as far as like as far as making things and like the craft craft of creation, you know, it doesn't get more powerful than Aule and uh, and Yavanna. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so Aule at the prayer of Yavanna wrought two mighty lamps for the lighting of Middle Earth, uh, which he had built uh, amid the, cir- the encircling seas. Then Varda filled the lamps and Manwe hallowed them, and the Valar set them upon high pillars more lofty far uh, than are any mountains of the later days. So, so we're kind of getting to the part in the in the creation story where where creation is lit. Um, <laughs> like this is going so slow. <laughs> God beat these guys uh, on the on the time frame for sure. Uh, well, you, it's interesting that you say that because they it it seemed from the chapter that they created the lights because they had. Sub- you know, at this point, subdued Melkor. Um, he fled, and so it, the fires and things that he had raging out of control, they bring those under control, and all of a sudden, there's no light. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, guys, we need some light now, now that we have the fires put out. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought it- that, that was... That, weird. that is that's an interesting point though because because melkor's fires are uh are are wrathful and, and really like uncontrolled you know like the, this is like the yeah. the the light that comes out of a, a an erupting volcano or something or a wildfire right yeah. those are very ominous lights and here it's not only these lamps aren't just lighting creation they are these are contained and in uh predictable um constructive lights um and they're, and they're going to be regular uh, as well. So they're, they're going to be dependable. Um, whereas the, those, those wrathful uh, lights and, and burnings are, are destructive um, as is with, with everything that Morgoth does, right? It, destructive in one way or another. What I thought was super interesting about this part was just the involvement of the four like you read, you know, you had Aule and Ivana and Manwe and Varda all kind of doing their own contribution to the lamps. And even Aule making the lamps was at the prayer of his wife, you know, requesting that. And there seems to be a little bit of a correlation of the light being necessary for her to do what she does right with her seeds and stuff like that so there's that element there the second thing that i thought of course having just read narnia with my kids is uh here's a lamp you know c.s lewis obviously is 
it's much more famous for having the lamp in Narnia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, that that got me to kind of, I was like, you know, I wonder why they both had lamps in their stories of like all the things, I guess. And I don't know if, if Tolkien's lamps are kind of the same, but I did look it up and um, Lewis and Tolkien both were in, they say Mulvern or Mulvern uh, College. And it's like a town there in England. And they're known for having these gas lamps that lit the streets. Oh. And and Lewis is recorded as saying that that would be really neat to put that in a story. And I don't know if that was where Tolkien got it from or not, but it just it's kind of an interesting correlation where we see a lot of parallels in their stories. They obviously use them differently because the lamp in, in Narnia doesn't have the same function. But it's just, it's really neat to, I don't know, connect the two there and that they're both looking at these lamps. And if you like Google it or YouTube it, you can see there's still some of these historic gas lamps around. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, I'm curious if that's part of why he put the lamps in here. You know, I listened to a really, go ahead, Nick. Oh, it's a good point that that these had, that this town has beautiful gas street lamps because here at least you know if i go outside and look at some of the street lamps here they're just atrocious they're you know <laughs> like a stick with some with like a, an led lamp at the top they're ugly but if he's basing these on the lamps you know these these gas lamps that are in in uh england at the time they're probably quite beautiful lamps something that you could admire which i don't ever see i just see unadmirable lamps so uh I think that is something that's that's important to to think about that these aren't ugly street lamps that you'd find in a parking lot at walmart and we're not used to seeing gas lamps like they have a flickering flame in them and later it's you know that they're when they're spoiler they're knocked down and the flame falls out like the gas lamps are actually really kind of mesmerizing to look at because they have that flicker of the flame where now we're we just have light bulbs so very exciting but it is convenient mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah we traded beauty for convenience that's right well so so maddie you, you gave us a spoiler <laughs> alert but i i want to actually go ahead and just kind of fast forward to that so you know so we've, we've got the lamps they're, they're special enough that they actually get names so one is named iluin and the other is named ormal one's in the north one's in the south um and they're kind of shining at, at different times and uh, and things are growing up um, because of their light. Uh, beasts come forth and, and live in the grassy plains um, and things are good. And, and of course, that's when Morgoth comes in to, uh, to ruin everything. Um, one of the one of the lines I really loved talking about about this um, is is talking about uh, Melkor. And he says, in seeing now his time. Uh, his time, he drew near again to Arda and looked down upon it, and the beauty of the earth in its spring filled him the more with hate. Mm-hmm. That was such a good line, uh, and so 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 he comes and he and he destroys the lamps. So filled with hate because he can't make anything beautiful himself. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the constant yeah, no. theme for him is is that. Uh, evil isn't creative it has to corrupt something that's already in existence either destroy it or twist it for for his own ends what you just said made me think of um how just a few lines before that it says that he's talking about the spirits of the halls of Ea that he perverted to his service i just really liked that word choice um for perverted because you know he's that's what he does he corrupts, he perverts, he just um, makes ill use of what should have been good. I thought that that was really strange that he had, you know, he had spies among them, just just living with them in the in the light and in the in the happiness and in the joy of what they were building there, and they remained somehow in his thrall like that that's kind of odd to me but like he, he just, had little judases at the feast 
right? Yeah. Because that, that's exactly what the what the Valar were up to uh, when this happens. Yeah. They're sitting down and they're having a great celebratory feast um, that, that Manway ordered. Uh, and so they were they were having a great time. Uh, um, of course, uh, Ale and Tulkas got, got pretty tired um, for all they were doing. But um, in that weakness, that was when Melkor chose to strike. And I think there's something I, I just think it's it's interesting and, and it'll happen again. Another spoiler alert, but at a time when when the Valar are, are sort of resting from their labors and, and kind of celebrating what's being done, uh, that's that's when he chooses to spring upon them and in, in attack. Um, and like I said, it'll happen again. But um, I, I, I think there's something behind that, uh, some sort of truth behind that as well. Um, a little folding of the hands, right? complacency yeah well and that's what plagues so much of you know christians in america for example is that we've been so comfortable for so long and we're super blessed with all the i mean truly wealth and prosperity that we have in america comparatively and and uh it's really put us at risk because we're unguarded you know as a whole American evangelicals are extremely unguarded and um, there's something about kind of that when you're having a good time, like you just kind of feel like there's nothing in the world that could hurt you, you know, and, and it's, it does seem at least experientially, that's kind of like when the hits really come because you're kind of blindsided by it. Uh, No, I, I definitely, I think you're onto something. I see a lot of parallels there. Um, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that I appreciate uh, about the life um, of a Christian, especially, I guess, coming from from my corner of the world as a as a Reformed Baptist, right, is um, we do get we get a day of rest every week. Um, and that's not um, uh, we're, it's not that we're necessarily like um, being complacent during that time, you know, where it's it's ordained uh, to to rest. Um, but you know, there is a purpose for that. Uh, you know, we're, we're going on from that to more labors that the Lord has called us to in our own vocations, um, in our, in our personal worship, our own, our family devotions, all these kinds of things. And, and we get to rest and refuel on the Lord's day. Um, and I think in doing that, in taking that periodic rest, uh, one day in seven, I think we're better equipped, um, not only to, to handle kind of the, the slings and arrows uh, to, to borrow from Shakespeare that, that get thrown our way by the enemy. Um, but also to stave off this desire to sit back, relax and take it easy um, because we do get that taste of rest every week. We're not working ourselves down to the bone. Uh, we get the natural rhythm of the redeemed life of, of work. We six days will work. And on, on the seventh, uh, well, you know, on the seventh day we rest, but for the Lord's day, on the first day of the week, uh, we rest as the as the final fulfillment of that uh, of that Sabbath. So I don't know. I I, I you know uh, that that rhythm. Uh, the more that I've gotten into that as um, as a Christian in recent years and and in further reforming um, has has been I think incredibly helpful um, and spurred me on um, as a Christian to uh, to not be weary in in doing good. So I say all that to say I love the Sabbath. Hey, <laughs> man. Hey, man. Um, well, it's certainly not like the wedding party that they were having with uh, Tolkas and Nessa. So it's, it's a little bit different. But in yeah. the same way, it's kind of like a wedding. Yeah. I guess. I think, too, like in an inverse way, you know, it. this story also points out that you know, Melkor, like Satan, uh, doesn't follow in any, you know, Geneva conventions. Like he takes, <laughs> he takes advantage of whatever, you know, weakness or opportunity he can. He's not like, oh, I'll just let him rest for a little while. So, uh, Tolkien does a good job of, of really, um, understanding evil 
which a lot of modern writers don't, you know, so many people want to give like this, you know, alternate view of maybe why the villains are really just victims, <laughs> but no, Melkor is really just, he's, he's evil and he hates all that is good. Uh, there's a great C.S. Lewis quote uh, that, that, that kind of reminded me of where he, he talks about fantasy is when people wear their insides on the outside. And, and I, I think that is such a simple, clear explanation of some of the things we love about about fantasy because because Morgoth here, of course, it, it helps that he's a spiritual being. He's not just a, a person like us, but but he gets to wear that evil heart on the outside. Um, where I'm sure if some if a postmodern writer were writing Melkor, they would humanize him and they would put some some mitigating factors in there to try to make us identify with him a little more. Um, uh, my, my problem is I still find myself identifying with him sometimes in his evil, right? Uh, uh, because of my, my proclivity to sin, but, uh, um, but he gets to wear that kind of pure evil on the outside and really be the standard bearer for ultimate evil. Um, and I think that helps clear up so many things, um, not only in the Silmarillion, but carrying that same through, uh, that same topic through into the, even the Lord of the Rings, uh, where Sauron kind of takes up that mantle, literally, um, and and wears it. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's one of the one of the things I really find interesting about really, really about about Tolkien and Lewis is that very clear wearing the insides on the outside, and that's plain here with just the the utter destruction of these lamps. Um, and so so Melkor comes through and just knocks them over, and. Um, I guess a, a something interesting that that I thought, and I guess I wanted to ask the group, um, when they're destroyed, it says, and when the lamps were spilled, destroying flame was poured out over the earth, and the shape of Arda and the symmetry of its waters and its lands was was marred in that time, so that the first designs of the Valar were never uh, were never after restored. Why do you think the destruction of these of these two lamps on these tall pillars had such an outsized effect on on the entire creation, the, the entire uh, realm of Arda? The first thing that occurred to me is is just the sheer size of them. Right, they're they're taller than the more lofty far than any mountains of the later days, and they had to be enormous, right, to be able to shine light from one end of middle earth to the other um, so just from sheer size something like that being destroyed is going to have a really impact um, yeah just on a, on a practical side yeah having that that massive thing come down and and another aspect of that just just on a on sort of a physics standpoint too uh, at this time arda is a a flat um a flat earth uh, according so the, the earth is changed to a, a, a sphere uh, later uh, in history but at this time arda is a flat planet um and so uh yeah you're right uh, two light lamps of this size would would definitely have an outsized impact on a on a flat surface rather than a uh, than a a round one I, I wondered as i was reading it and part of why i asked the question was i wondered if the the intent of Morgoth created some of the uh, the outsized impact um, because it is his intent to break what the Valar have made. Um, that al almost like not only did he destroy them, but like he like he got them pushed over extra hard, so they made even more impact uh, on the ground and created cracks that that weren't intended to be there and couldn't be fixed. Um, I don't know. It almost like like he could put his rage into that destructive act and make it even more destructive than it may have naturally been. And I've got no textual support for that. It just made me made me think. One of the things that so it's it talks about the symmetry of the waters ahead of time. That that's one of the things that was destroyed by the lamps being destroyed. Uh, and it reminds me of the fact that beauty can involve symmetry. You know, we look at a, a building that has some symmetry and we think, oh, that's a beautiful building or something like that. Uh, 
or or like an old uh, French garden where you know you have the walks that are they're just perfectly symmetrical. Everything's you know on the same side. Yeah, French he destroys. Yeah, he destroys the these lamps and destroys the sim of the waters, uh, and and so the symmetry's gone. And he thinks that maybe, impossibly, he thinks that destroying symmetry will destroy the beauty of the land, and it does to some extent. But the thing is, is that we can find beauty in things that are non-symmetrical as well. So, you know, going from those French symmetrical gardens to like the more English romantic gardens where you have this beautiful walk and trees are just like, you know, the willows are all hanging over the uh, the walks and everything. Those are beautiful as well. We don't need symmetry. It, it might be nice, but it's not needed. And so I think that's a big part of the the redemption here and and even going from lamps which i mean maybe these lamps weren't symmetrical but i'll just assume that they were <laughs> to trees trees are not trees grow yeah. off in weird directions they're they're not symmetrical but they're still beautiful and so there's something you know it's uh i'm wondering if maybe there's an element of like melkor thinking that aha and i've got that i've got that symmetry gone they'll never get beauty back and then, uh, you know, the, the Valar show them wrong. So, uh, might be part of it. I'm not sure. They definitely do show him to be wrong. So not only, you know, can the, can the non-symmetrical thing be beautiful, um, but also uh, the Valar are willing to leave the ruins alone because they feared to rend the earth again, as it says at the end of this paragraph that we're looking at. Afterwards, they feared to rend the earth again until they knew where the children of Iluvatar were dwelling, who were yet to come in a time that was yet hidden from the Valar. Because after all, we have to remember, like, this is the reason that they came to Middle-earth, right? They love the children. They're very eager to see the children awake in, in Arda. In the fact that they were willing, I think this is so interesting, they were willing to see their hard work completely marred and um, uh, by Melkor and have him leave his mark on, on these creations uh, that, that they worked hard on uh, in honor of Iluvatar. They were willing to see those things stay there in that broken condition. So to make it safe for the children to, to awake um, like, you know, it would be so easy. And I think this could be a temptation of, of a Vala like like Aule, right? Who who uh, is so um, is so creative, and that's kind of his mark is that he makes things. It would be easy for him to just go ahead and and remix his part of the creation, and and actually end up, you know, let's say he he does something, and and it would actually end up crushing the uh, the elves right where they wake up or something like that. Um, so the 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 patience and um, in passion for the true mission of of making a place for the children to awake, uh, I think is really admirable uh, in this that they were willing to 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 live to see these ruins sit until the children awake uh, was uh, uh, really stood out to me. They were willing to put up with the imperfect thing until the actual uh, culmination of the mission uh, was to come. I just thought they were cowards. <laughs> <laughs> if Tulkas hadn't been taking a nap, something would have been different. But taking my ball and going home, he was he was busy uh, icing his fists. <laughs> I'm just kidding, people. Don't, get, don't send us hate mail. It's just a joke. There's something interesting about light in um, in this chapter, and light kind of is a substance um and the reason I, I mentioned that is because as i was reading uh so the the valar uh leave arda and they go to an island called amon um and they they erect a uh, a mountain range called the pylori and it says behind the pylori uh they were so they were in their houses in a guarded land so they do they take refuge for themselves away from that that marred creation that that Melkor has ruined. And it says, in that guarded land, the Valar gathered great store of light and all the fairest things that were saved from the ruin. 
what what is a store of light <laughs> what what could that mean it's like they just produce light like it's just part of who they are or they have like an led factory yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's one or the other yeah they just have that glow you know <laughs> You know, this gave me a little bit of like the heavenly Jerusalem type vibe, you know, where, um, you know, it says uh, the deathless dwelt there and they're not faded nor withered. Neither was there any stain upon flower in that land or any corruption or sickness in anything that lived for the very stones and waters were hallowed. Um, definitely. Yeah. A heavenly Jerusalem type vibe for me, you know, and everything that is light is good. That obviously seems to be a theme here, you know, light versus darkness. So it's almost like another way of saying in it, there was no darkness at all, is that they stored up light, um, even though they didn't yet have another source of light quite yet because the lamps were destroyed. Um, but that's really kind of where I was, I was going when I was reading this. Who wants to start the spoiler alerts with the trees? You can, you can be the queen of spoilers. Well, let me say I love, you know, in the first, so this is like the third time reading through this chapter for me. I didn't pick up the first two times as much that, uh, Nienna. So Yvonne has this mound, right? That she's like. I guess singing over and you know things are growing but nana goes and cries and her tears go into the mound and then from that mound the the trees eventually come and um moving forward i just i think that's so interesting how tolkien keeps kind of weaving nana and grief and sorrow kind of into the story that is also good because the trees are good and oh, they're yeah. the source of light. They're epic. But yeah. <laughs> I love the two trees. I'm not I won't beat around the bush about it. I think they're uh they're one of the <laughs> That was a good one. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good one, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can be funny sometimes. Uh <laughs> They, I think they're one of the most, even though this, even though this book is called the Silmarillion, I think you could easily make the two trees, uh, kind of the central image of, of, uh, um, of, of, of this entire historical, um, pre Lord of the Rings thing, because so many of, so many of the things that happen in the later chapters all, uh, are related to the trees eventually. Um, and I, there really will be spoilers, so I, I'm not going to. I won't elaborate much more than that, but you would not have so many of the important elements of the later story in the Silmarillion without the two trees. So it's a very, very important fundamental um, piece of creation uh, for the for Middle Earth um, as a whole. Um, and I think uh, I think they're really I think they're really fascinating. Um, it is interesting, though, to think of of a of an entire world um, lit by trees <laughs> that that produce light. We know Tolkien loved trees, but man, that is a that's a whole different level. Um, of course, these are uh, these are trees in heaven, so <laughs> we should expect them to be probably a little bit different than uh, than we would normally see in our in our backyard. Because after all this, so this island, this Amon uh, is is also called Valinor later, and in, in, in essentially is heaven um, in, in this story, uh, the entire legendarium. So, like uh, like the ring bearers when they get on the ships at the Grey Havens, they're sailing off to Amon uh, to Valinor, and so um, Bilbo and Frodo and Gandalf. Of course, Gandalf returns there; that's where he's from. But um, but he, and then eventually Sam. Uh, all go uh, they go to heaven and, and they and they spend eternity with with the valar um in in valinor so um 
So very much a a heaven a heavenly atmosphere there, even though Nienna brings uh brings an amount of grief <laughs> to the place, but uh it's still not a perfect very, representation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's still in Middle Earth. You know, it's it's still right. in Arda. Um it's an island uh and it, it's harder to get to later in the story when the when the world changes but um but it is still on the planet heaven is a place on earth well and if you think about it we wouldn't have access to heaven if it weren't for the suffering of christ so you know we are kind of inextricably you know tied to suffering in order to enter glory and i think that's a little bit of what Tolkien's picking up here as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christ was no stranger to grief at all. So on on the uh, on the two trees, uh, I know we we talked a little bit about uh, number one. Uh, J.R. Tolkien is very based, even for a papist, and I I I was especially entertained that the two trees uh, they are a male and female tree, uh, and. And I think there's a level of uh, of completeness that 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 brings a, a certain uh, orderly balance um, that each tree has its own um, uh, complement complementary stance. Um, and there's a there's a time uh, as we talk about um, kind of how uh, how the phases of those trees pass in the course of a day. Um, there's a time when they're both kind of waning. And then a, a time when they're both at their full strength, and then one will overtake from the other, um, which uh, is uh, I think was an interesting. Obviously, it's it's a mirroring of sort of the sun and the moon, right? Um, but in tree form <laughs> instead of a heavenly body form. But um, but it does take on uh, at that time where it, it talks about. Um, I want to make sure I, I get the. Uh, I get the time right or, or get the reference right. Thus began. Okay. So thus began the days of the bliss of Valinor and thus began also the count of time. So a lot of people will talk in, in, so in, in Tolkien nerdy terms, they'll, they'll talk about uh, um, how like there's the, 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 the years of the trees um, or, or the years of the lamps and time will, time is counted differently based on which of those bodies is in, of course. And then, after the after the trees uh, when the sun and moon come into existence you know then then those are kind of the normal times but um i'm i'm very much uh intrigued by the significance of the passage of time <laughs> yes that's a great phrase should have thought of that yeah it is significant on it <laughs> Zach was smiling that whole time. He was just waiting for it, but got to be quicker than that. It was coming. <laughs> I could see it. Maybe he had to sneeze or something. <laughs> so what, I, another question. So in comparison of these of these lighting bodies uh, in Middle Earth, um, the description of how the trees light Arda is so much more detailed than what we got for the lamps. Um, does anybody have a particular idea why that would be? I don't know. You get a sense of of time moving, um, you know, the waxing and waning of the different lights. Uh, um, you don't have that with the lamps. It's always, it was all bright. It was constant. Um, so there is a different atmosphere all together you have the rise and fall you know all the the silver light and then the gold light even a flickering lamp is either on or off right <laughs> trees obviously uh you know are uh, change differently with seasons right another thing is i'm pretty sure this is supposed to be written from the elves you know this is based on the elves uh understanding of of the past they never they didn't see the lamps uh they 
didn't know what the lamps were like, but they would have seen the trees. Uh, and so it could be that it's because of that, uh, you know, we, we have more information about stuff that was, you know, around when historians were writing than, you know, before we had a ton of historians around. Yeah. You know, the kind of the one thing that uh, real Galadriel and Rings of Power Galadriel have in common is they both grew up around the trees in Valinor and got to see the light of the trees. It's the one thing those two characters have in common. <laughs> they were true to the lore. I like to think that both consulted archivists at times as well. <laughs> oh, we don't know if we've got information about the kings of men or not. Blah, 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 blah. Like, give me a break. I wish you had opinions on Rings of Power, Lee. Yeah, I, it'd be I nice just... to hear him sometime. <laughs> yeah, I wish I cared about the show. It was worth watching just to know what Lee was mad about. <laughs> there was like a weekly rant, basically, while the first season was still on the air. Like there'd be a new rant every episode. It was just, it was a, it, I, I was. I was as horrified of that show as I was when I watched the um, the Dracula series on Netflix. Well, I watched I watched the first episode, um, which was just awful. If you know, if you know at least the the first half of the book, um, and incidentally, both of these series have the actor uh, Morphid Clark in in them, and I think she's the one that ruined both of those things. <laughs> It's it's all Morphid's fault. That's her name. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, M O R F Y Y D. So she's Welsh. Hmm. Morphid, okay. maybe. I don't know. I'm American. I say it, I say it right. <laughs> however, I say it. No, I wish I had like a chart for the trees, like the lighting sequence. Because it took a while. I had to reread that a couple times. Like, all right, seven hours peak. Then a couple hours where they're kind of waning and waxing at the same time. Um, but I couldn't do the math on that. That's supposed to be like a 24 hour period. I think it's because there's 12 hours. Yeah, each it's a, each day of the Valar in Amon contained 12 hours and ended with the second mingling of the lights in which Laurelin was waning, but Telperion was waxing. So they get so two two days go by for them in the course of one um, Middle Earth day, I guess. Well, and, and I had in, in in the in the time of the sun and moon, I, I should make that comparison. Because I I had read like a note. I didn't read it for myself, but it sounds like Valinor time is longer than Middle Earth. It was something like it was like a year and in, in Valinor is nine and a half years and Middle Earth. I made Lee run and get a reference. He's going to go get something. He's going to look it up. <laughs> he's got he's, awesome. we need the facts. We need our fact checker, Lee. We need some more information about the significance of the passage of time here. In, in Arda. <laughs> Sorry, talk amongst yourselves for a second. I actually, I own a copy of that, uh, The Nature of Middle Earth, and I'm going to try to see if I can find something in there on the fly about uh, um, about tree time. Tree time. The significance of the passage tree of time. time. <laughs> the significance of, of the passage of trees. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the trees man the trees when i saw that it was 12 hours for a day i was very confused because i would have thought that it was a longer scale and not a shorter scale for a day uh it didn't it didn't make sense to me so this uh, is what i'm thinking hours. i'm thinking it's like one tree peaks at seven hours and then wanes 
And then once that one's almost waned, there's like the overlap of an hour or two. And then the other one waxes up to peak at seven hours and then wanes. So there's like that period where they kind of overlap together. So it is like 24 hours because at one point they're both kind of like low at the same time for a couple hours. But then you've got um, Pelperion and Laurelin like. Oh, okay, Lee's Lee's got the boy. Do I have the goods the for you? Look, the you know this is why I make the big bucks. Okay, so <laughs> so the very first chapter is called the Valian Year. Uh, so like the year of Valinor. So it says the Yen, which is merely a mode of reckoning, has nothing to do with the life of the elves. In Amon, this depended on the years of the trees, or really on the days of the trees. Uh, in Middle Earth, on the cycles of growth, spring to spring, or Loar. Uh, in Middle-earth, one Loa aged an elf as much as a year of the trees, but these were, in fact, ten times as long. A year of the trees had 1,000 days of 12 hours, so that equals 12,000 tree hours. A year of 365.25 days of 24 hours has 8,766 hours. Uh, let me turn the page. Tree years have 87,660 if 12,000 tree hours equals 10 Middle Earth years, each tree hour equals about 7.3 sun hours, equals 7 hours and 18 seconds. How are we to arrange for the sun and moon? Elves do not know how Arda was established or the companions of Anar made of their, of their companies, for it is to the life of Arda, uh, not Aya, which they are bound in their love for Arda, though um, they may consider... Uh, the matter and and having amazing sight they can see in the heavens things we cannot which uh, accounts for their um i think more exact reckoning of time uh, and then again for time it says there are 12 tree hours in each valley and day 144 days in each valley and year but each valley and year equals 144 uh, mortal years therefore one valley and day equals one mortal year um, and one tree hour equals approximately one mortal month. Which is interesting. I'm these are these are two different that to me like I'm five. <laughs> so these are these are two these are two different texts that are accounting for time in Valinor. So the, what they've done is that they're using those hours that are set out here and and uh, stacking them up into years um and and then comparison between the two so there's a um you're you're comparing tree years in valinor with days of uh, of the sun and moon in the later age um so yeah so so day so time actually passes slower in valinor uh to the tune of um a year in in valinor uh, uh under the trees um, equals 144 years in uh, what they call mortal years uh, or or years in Middle Earth. So that's like, that's a significant drag in time. Um, and then, of course, the aging of elves, um, uh, it kind of corresponds to that too, because after all, they are, um, they're, and as our chapter says uh, today, um, they're more like in character to the Valar. And so I think they have more, I, I, probably especially for the elves that that grew up in Valinor, um, their their age is more determined by the Valian year than the mortal years that come with living in in Middle Earth. Anyway, that that's what I take away from that that bit of information. But I highly recommend the Nature of Middle Earth, which uh, is a book put together by uh, Carl Hofstetter. Um, I believe it's also in this book. I haven't finished it yet, but. Um, this book also references that there were dancing bears on Numenor, which I think is just absolutely delightful. Interesting. Numenor was just an, an isle of delights. Those are the best kinds of bears. It's better when they dance instead of maul you. <laughs> Thank you for laughing, Maddie. If only those, if only those kids that that Elisha sicked the bears on, 
were dancing bears instead of she bears. That'd have been great. I don't know why those are exclusive. Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) (laughs) Have y'all ever seen like Fantasia? No. Like the Disney? I'm I'm straight. Hated Fantasia. (laughs) Well, you know, like the hippos, like how they dance, like with tutus. Okay. That's kind of yes. what I'm envisioning with the bears. Like bears <laughs> dancing with choo-choos. <laughs> oh, man. We digress very, very far. <laughs> what happened? Nick's blowing his nose. <laughs> I was trying to do it like subtly, you know. I, I loved it. I, I was already cracking up but, at your message, so it didn't matter. Well, I didn't want to blow my nose and and distract, dis- disrupt, and distract, but I ended up doing it anyway, so that's fine.